Um, welcome everyone to Dree Shah in this Stanley Rudolph Memorial High Holiday Lecture. Very excited to see you. The lecture today is about Satan, the evolution of uh, evil. We encourage you to turn on your video if you are able so we can uh, feel uh, like we are together in a traditional class. Uh, we understand if you are not able to. Uh, also, please feel free to ask questions or comment by either uh, writing in the chat box here on Zoom or as a comment uh, on Facebook if you are watching us live. You can also, I believe Yael is also okay with us uh, unmuting um, and asking questions uh, during the lectures, uh, lecture as they come up. This lecture, we look at, at those ways in which the concept of Satan evolved over the course of Jewish history and what those, oh, I'll put whoever, just keep yourself on uh, mute for now if that's okay. Uh, what I was saying was, uh, and what those changes can teach us about sin, uh, culpability, and men's ultimate search for the meaning of evil. It is my pleasure to introduce Yael Leibowitz. Yael Leibowitz has her master's degree in Judaic studies from Columbia University. Prior to moving to Israel, Yael taught Tanakh at the Upper School of Ramaz and then went, uh, went on to join the Judaic studies uh, faculty at um, Yeshiva University Stern College for Women. She has taught continuing education courses at Risha Institute for Jewish Education and served as resident scholar at the Jewish Center of Manhattan. She's currently teaching at Matan Women's Institute for Torah Learning and is a frequent lecturer in North America and also in the United Kingdom. And with that, I'll turn this to uh, Yael. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so welcome. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt for a minute. Evie, um, I wanted to, before we started, um, say a few words about the fact why we've dedicated this lecture in my father's memory. Um, so on behalf of the Rudolph family, I welcome everybody who's here. Many of you have been listening to these lectures for years and years. Many of you are new to this lecture series. So we, we welcome you all and we're delighted to see you all. Um, my father... Um, he wasn't a rabbi, he wasn't a formal cantor, but he knew how to daven. And um, from the time I was a child, wherever he got a job for Rosh Hashanah, that's where we went. Um, he could blow shofar, he could lane, he could daven shachris, he could daven musaf. So whatever a shul needed, he was available to do it. Um, and really for my entire growing up years, um, my father would, would daven or do one of those things or more than one of those things um, for, for a congregation on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, so the prayers are very familiar to us and um, we can every year when we listen to the davening, even though it's now 30 years since my father passed away, um, we can still hear his voice um, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, it was a very special time, and when he would put the talus over his head and uh, and lead the services for the lead the shaliach tzibur for the congregation, his heart and soul were really into it, um, and he was really talking to God um, in the in the best way that he knew how. Um, so um, it's very meaningful to us to dedicate this year on for related to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in his memory. And I'm particularly delighted with the topic that we chose because I can clearly hear my father reciting the Hinnini Ha'anini Ma'as before the Musaf uh, service and, and going, V'sigar besatan levav 
That was his nusach for that piece of um, for that piece of the Hinnani, um, and it still resonates with me uh, thirty years later. So thank you very much, Ael, for um, doing this year for us, and we really look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you so much. Um, so first of all, it is you know it's always an honor and it's always a pleasure to speak uh, and learn with participants at Trisha. Um, but I will say, Suri, first of all, just there's something very special. I know you know that we know uh, Sima and, and also Amanda, if I'm not mistaken, is right. So there's always something extra special about being able to do a yard site share in memory of someone that even though I never got the had the slit to know him, to know his extended family, um, you could learn a lot about someone by by uh, by who they leave behind. So it really is a pleasure. And I will say if there was any doubt um, that then this topic is bashert, then you literally started my share for me because um, what I was actually going to begin my intro, which I no longer have to do. Thank you. Perfect. You just shaved 70 seconds off this uh, off this year is is actually talk about that. Talk about how, you know, the the tune that you just sang, right, where we talk about the satan is something that all of us, I think, many of us at least, um, I'm glad you agree with me, uh, think about this time of year, right? And, and the topic of Satan, I remember as a kid, right? I remember hearing that right before chauffeur blowing. I remember, um, you know, sort of being fascinated and also slightly terrified by all the Satan talk that permeates the month of Elul into Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, right? We talk about how, um, for those of you that are familiar, we don't bench Rosh Chodesh, the Shabbat before Tishrei because we want to confuse Confuse the Satan, right? So he doesn't actually know that Rosh Hashanah is coming up and we don't blow shofar on Erev Rosh Hashanah. Also the sort of the sense of to confuse him. And we have the acronym of Kara Satan, um, you know, the sort of sense that the Satan should be taken down or defeated, so to speak. Um, and so the Satan really sort of plays this sort of central role in our consciousness, I think, in the days leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And what I wanted to talk about today is not necessarily whether we take these discussions, you know, or explanations literally or not. Can I actually confuse this Satan? Um, but really to talk about what, why the Satan takes up this kind of space. And what I want to do really, what I want to look at um, is twofold. I want to first and foremost sort of think about how we approach this being that we call Satan. And as we're going to see over the course of today's lecture, whether we say, whether we write Satan with a capital or a lowercase s is going to be really something um, important. That's going to be a significant difference. Um, you know, but how do we approach this being that our tradition seems to take as a given? Um, but perhaps more importantly, how does this belief in prosecuting angels or even in, in independent evil beings play into our conceptions of sin and righteousness, right? We're so relieved that the Satan has no power on Yom Kippur. Well, well, what does that mean for the rest of the year, right? So all of these topics that we sort of throw around during the period of Yamim Noraim, I think as we're going to see really taps into a much larger discussion about how we as Jews think about evil, how we think about the evil inclination, how we think about evil forces uh, in the world. So I want to mention a book by the name by um, a man by the name of Ryan Stokes, um, because he's really the one, his, much of his research is really what got me thinking about this topic in this uh, sort of in this way. Um, and I'm going to start really with a question and you could feel free to take yourselves off mute for a second if you want. I want you to just free associate, right? Get our brains working on a Sunday afternoon. Um, and if I say Satan, okay? So what do you think of? Scream out, you can free associate. 
Right. What word do you think of when I say Satan or playing a game of broken telephone? What comes to mind? Devil. Devil. Huh? Devil. Devil. Okay. Devil. Excellent. Right. Anything else? I think of Eov. I think okay. of Ghanaian. Ah, amazing. Okay. We think of Eov. That's going to come up. Okay, excellent, right? So I'm going to say Eov, which we're going to get to in a couple of minutes. Lisa said temptation or Yetzer, which we're also going to get to towards the end. Um, anything else? Anyone thinking of Lucifer, but embarrassed to say it? Any, any other, right? I think many of us, ah, oh, wait, I see, I'm just seeing that they're raising hands. Hold on one second. People aren't, okay, hold on one second. Feel free not to raise your hands. This is just scream out. I haven't taught high school in, in long enough. I'm, I prefer everyone just screaming out. Um, okay, evil inclination. Excellent, right, Robert? Um, what else? Any other thoughts? Okay. On a humorous note, church mm -hmm. lady. Sorry? On a humorous note, yeah. church lady from Saturday Night Live. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know that. That's right. It's amazing. You could give a share on anything and somehow Saturday Night Live is always going to make it in. It's, it's, an act, it's something uh, we should think about as like a culture, what, what that says about us. It's an amazing thing, no matter what you talk about. Um, okay, so one um, of the things- yeah. competition to God. Ah, okay, so excellent, excellent, excellent. Okay, amazing. God so. Competing, but Satan is competing. Excellent, excellent. And where does that concept come from? And what does that say about monotheism? So all of these, I'm, I'm so happy everyone gave basically all the answers that we needed to sort of get the get the ball rolling. So what I want to what I want to really spend some time thinking about today, um, you know, is how the Satan, how we understand Satan, right? Because why we think what we think is almost more important than understanding what we think. And tombs have been written, really. We're not gonna, there's no way we're gonna be able to cover the entire topic of Satan or evil. What I wanna just try to do, um, you know, in the next 45 minutes or so, is give a brief sketch of how the concept of Satan, and as we're gonna see, as many of you really intuited, right, that the concept of demons and the Yetzer evolved in Jewish thought, and what that can tell us about our experience during this time of year. So a couple of things just by way of intro. One of the things I always remind my students uh, to keep in mind when we're studying any topic in Jewish thought is that we're coming at that topic 4,000 years into history, right? So meaning we are coming in four millennia worth of evolution of Jewish thought under different realities and different empires and different parts of the globe. And so one of the things that I think is really cool to try to do is deconstruct what we see as a composite idea and, and try to find all the different strands or the different influences that led to that way of understanding or to what we assume when we talk about something today. Right now, a couple of disclaimers before we, we even get started. The first thing, and I think many of you are, are well aware of this, if you're a Drisha student, some of this goes without saying, right? But I'll say it anyway. So the first thing that we know is that there's no such thing as asking, what does Tanakh say? Right? Or what did Chazal say? Because the works of Tanakh and the works of Chazal are varied and they're variegated. And when we're learning in an intellectually honest way, there's no reason to try to synthesize all the different voices so that they agree. Right? Rather, what we want to try to do when we're studying seriously is honor the internal dialogue to see what all the different voices had to say. That's the first thing. I think the next thing is also that, as with everything, Right? There's no linear development in Jewish history. I think sometimes we imagine, 
you know, if you think about the first Mishnah, um, you know, Perkei Avon says, Moshe Kibel Torah Misina, Yomisarul Yoshua, Yoshua Zakenim. We sort of like to imagine that the development in Jewish history had this perfectly straight, linear, clean uh, development. But we, we know, right, that Jewish history and Jewish thought is a lot more about zigzags and branches than it is about a straight line. And so what we're going to be doing today is tracing some of those zigzags. And then, of course, the final point, and again, I think this goes without saying, um, you know, for Jewish students, but Judaism didn't evolve in a vacuum. Right? And the more that we know about the ancient world and the more we see how Judaism was both a product of its environment and also revolutionized ideas as it accepted and rejected them, so the more we can understand the, the topic at hand. Right? Now, for today's discussion, we're going to be looking, and I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with it, but I imagine many of you are, we're going to be uh, looking primarily at Tanakh, what Tanakh has to say about Satan, and then we're also going to be moving into uh, extra biblical second temple works. Um, you know, one of the things when we study Jewish texts, one of the things that often goes unnoticed is this unnatural gap between the late biblical works and then the Mishnah. Right? We sort of jump from the, I don't know, fifth, fourth centuries BCE, even a little bit later, all the way to the period when the Mishnah is being written. And that leaves a two or even 300 year gap between the last works of Tanakh and the Mishnah. And so when we're trying to trace the evolution of ideas within Judaism, one of the tools that in the 21st century we are actually in a unique place to have at our fingertips are many of the lost or forgotten works that were rediscovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Cairo Geniza that shed light on the way that Jews actually thought and learned and understood things in those centuries between the Tanakh and then Torah Shvalpeh. And so the Second Temple literature almost fill in, right? The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, it was amazing for millions of reasons, but for, for us today, studying how Jewish concepts evolved, what it did is it filled in that black hole in Jewish literature, okay? But we're gonna start with the logical starting point, which is of course, uh, sorry, I just have to move you guys over for a second. I'm gonna share the uh, sources, my apologies. Um, it doesn't give me the option to share. Am I not a... You are a co-host, let me double check. You should be able to share. Ah, I see it. Okay, sorry about that. Give me 30 seconds. Tell me if you need my help. Should work now. Okay. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to start with the logical starting place, right? We're going to start in Tanakh itself. And you guys are actually going to tell me what you notice. One of the things that we see here um, it says as follows. Okay, the first time, one of the first times that we see, it's not the first time, but one of the first times that we see Tanakh uh, talking about Satan is in Shmuel Aleph, at the very, very end of Shmuel Aleph. It's talking about the Plishtim. Now, by the way, one other thing, sorry, before we actually even get started, um, also just sort of by way of introduction, but it's important to be said, um, when we talk about how words or how idioms are used in Tanakh, one of the mistakes we make, and particularly I think we make this mistake because Hebrew language has been revived, right, in the last two centuries. And so we now have a modern Hebrew. One of the things that we do sometimes, not unintentionally, is retroject. We sort of, uh, you know, superimpose modern connotations or images onto ancient words. And so one of the things we have to really be aware of, and it's gonna be of primary importance today, is that when we translate a word, 
we have to try, if we're translating, if we're trying to understand the shot of the Pasuk, then what we have to pay attention to is to be aware of the fact that we're translating the word as it was understood by its original audience, right? That's the definition of pshat. So if I say today the word apple, for example, right, I could be referring to the fruit, I could be referring to the brand, apple, right? But I wouldn't read a book from 1920 and say, oh, it could be the apple brand or it could be the fruit. It would only be the fruit if it were a book from 1920, right? And so the same holds true for words in Tanakh as well. Right? A lot of times we throw out the word nefesh um, and we translate it in Tanakh as meaning soul. But nefesh in Tanakh doesn't mean soul. Nefesh means the entire person, right? It's sort of talking about the body and the soul, the entirety of the human being. The same goes for, um, it's very interesting and this sort of ties into today's topic, demons, right? There's lots of different words in Hebrew. We have ruach ra'ah, we have shadim. Today, if you look up a translation, it'll just be translated as demon. Right? But to the ancient Israelites, a ruach ra'ah versus a shade were completely different things. The nuances are just lost over time. And so all the words sort of collapsed into one translation of deeming. But what we're looking at and what I want you to pay attention to as I read this first pasuk on the source sheets is not translating Satan as devil, right? Or Lucifer or any of the other things we suggested in those first couple of minutes. But I want you to think about what that word actually means in the Pasuk. So the context here is David is, is being sent back because he was scared. Um, if you remember at the end of Shemuel Aleph, when right before that final showdown between the Plishtim and Shaul, the battle in which Shaul was actually killed. So one of the things that happens is that David was about to go out to fight. If you remember, David at that time was actually a king of Gat. He was a, um, one of the Philistine, sort of smaller Philistine kings. And the Philistines decided that they didn't want David going out on their behalf or leading their battalion because they questioned perhaps he'd have dual loyalties. So in those first sources in Pasuk Dalit, it says, Vayiktsifu alav sari plishtim. So they bring him back. They say, David can't go out. And I'm going to jump to the end of the Pasuk. Right? So again, feel free to take yourselves off mute. What is that in that sentence? Right? They don't, they're not saying, and they don't want David to be a devil. What are they saying? What, what, how would you translate the word Satan there? How would you translate it? Obstacle. Okay, excellent. Obstacle. Okay. okay, excellent. Adversary, right? Adversary, I think, is an even stronger phrase, right? Obstacle is, is almost a less uh, powerful way of translating it. Here, it's, it's literally an adversary, right? Or someone that might attack them, someone that might turn into, right? Someone that would attack them from their own side. And we see um, the famous story, by the way, in Bamidbar as well. Right? I'm not gonna, I'm gonna skip over some of the sources. I'm just keeping an eye on the time. In Lachim also, we have it there as well, used in the sense of an attacker, right? When Shlomo HaMelech is building the Beit HaMikdash or he's ready to build the Beit HaMikdash, he makes the claim, Ein Satan ve'ein Pegara, right? He's sort of done, he's, he's um, put to rest all of the enemies or the people that might want to attack him. And so now he's ready to build God a temple. If you look inside Sefer Bamidbar in source three, we see something very interesting. It says, Vayichar af Elohim, Kiholechu is the famous story when Bilam is going to curse uh, Israel, or he's attempting to go curse Israel. And it says that Hashem gets mad that he's going. Which might be why someone there used the word obstacle. Right here, what we're seeing 
is Satan again used sort of either to attack or to or to sort of you know again obstacle might be the appropriate word there but what do you find interesting about the fact that or what do you notice about the fact that the Satan is going on behalf of God it's used by the way as a common noun right jump down a little bit further in the sources it says suddenly right opens his eyes realizes and he has this sword, the, the angel of God, his sword is drawn. And Bilam bows down. Right, so it's even being used here as a verb. But what are we noticing? Forgetting beyond translating the word. What do you notice about Satan vis-a-vis, in this case, God? The juxtaposition of Malach and Satan. I was okay. going to ask you, yeah. you know, what's the difference other than their mission, but what constitutes their power, if any? Okay, and excellent. How does that, how does excellent, that fit in? Excellent, excellent, really important question here, right? And again, that's why, I, you know, I gave that very long-winded introduction of not superimposing translations or associations we have with a word onto the text, because from what it appears in this, in these early psukim in Tanakh, lisatan is a verb. And, and I think if, you know, to, to address your question, it seems that there isn't really much of a distinction between a malach and the satan. If anything, it's just a way of sort of clarifying or qualifying the role of this particular malach was sent to attack Bilam or sent to thwart Bilam, right? So again, I don't know if this is exactly your question, but perhaps what, what's striking to us is that the satan here is not at a cross purpose with God. He's the very angel that God sent to bring the divine judgment on Bilam. The agent. Okay? And yeah, sorry. I was gonna say like an agent. Exactly, which is by the way, the definition of a malach, right? A malach means, right? Malach is not, we, again, it's, it's one of those things we mistranslate or, or translate, right? A malach is a messenger or an agent is perhaps an even more precise word. A malach isn't just an angel, right? It has a specific definition um, as its functions in Tanakh, okay? So that's what we see in these two early sources. But what's interesting is if we move down to Divrei Hayamim, one of the things we find in Divrei Hayamim is a recounting of a very famous story from Shmuel Bet. If some of you might remember at the end of Shmuel Bet, David does, uh, David counts the people. He does takes a census, which we know there's all sorts of taboos against taking a census and uh, for all different reasons. And in the story in Shmuel Bet, David takes a census and Hashem gets very angry and he brings a plague on the people and, and it's really a travesty. Right? Now, what's interesting is that if we look in the source for Divrei Hayamim, it says as follows, Vayamod Satan al Yisrael, a Satan comes, right? He stands up, Vayaset et David limnotet Yisrael, and he tries to entice David to count the people. Okay, so this time, what are, how do you notice the Satan as being different, perhaps, than the Satan we saw with Bilam? So in yes. both cases, the Satan is to thwart, but in one case, God's objective is to thwart, as with okay. Bilam, but in this case, it seems that it's going contrary, he's setting David up to do something bad. 
Okay, excellent, 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 right? And I'm gonna tack on to what you just said because what's fascinating, we know that Divrei Hayamim is a retelling of some of the earlier episodes in Tanakh, right? And we know that Divrei Hayamim was written in during the early second temple period. What's fascinating is that the first time we hear this story, I'm gonna source five, it says as follows, Shmuel bet perak chafdalet, vayosef Hashem lacharot v'Israel, Hashem was angry at Israel, the, ex- the reason is not given, vayaset et David bahem lemor, lech meneet Yisrael ve'et Yehuda. Okay. So in Shmuel, Hashem is the one that entices or incites David to do this sin, so to speak, or to, to uh, perform the action that's going to bring punishment upon the people. And yet in Divrei Hayamim, what's fascinating is that it's sort of the, the, you could say the onus is placed on the Satan and not on God. And what's interesting, and again, I, I don't know that this is the explanation, but what we always think about when we're learning Divrei Hayamim, when there are ever deviations from the original story, we always ask why. Right. And, and, and one of the things that we actually do know about Second Temple literature, meaning looking at Sefer Daniel, Esther would be an exception, but looking at Sefer Daniel, looking at Haggai, looking at Zechariah, is that angels start, there's, begin to take on um, a larger role in the Second Temple works. It's sort of part of a larger trend. In the First Temple, if you look at the works of Tanakh from, written in the First Temple period. So for example, look at the story again, and I'm just going to throw it out there. We don't have time to address them tonight. Reread the story where Avram appears to, excuse me, where Hashem appears to Avram. There's almost like a blurring between Hashem and the angel. One minute a God is speaking, one minute the angel is speaking. There's almost like a blurring between them. We have something very similar to Theophany of Moshe by the Sneh. We have a very similar episode also with Eshet Manoach, the mother of Shimshon. One minute it's an angel, one minute it's a God. It's almost as if in those episodes, there seems to be something, a Malach, an agent that attracts the attention of the person, but then the conversation ensues between that person and God. And what we find in the second temple works more prominently, this isn't, you know, obviously a hard and fast rule, but for a variety of reasons, we start to see angels taking on more space as almost beings on their own. And in all likelihood, again, there's probably many other explanations for this phenomenon that many scholars have noticed, but in all likelihood, the increasing transcendence of God and the waning of prophecy leads to this sense where we begin to see much more clear lines of distinction. And we oftentimes begin to see God's work being carried out by divine intermediaries rather than God, right? There are no more direct miracles, but angels can perform miracles. And what's interesting is sort of how once there are divine intermediaries so clearly distinct from God, it leads to another phase in the evolution of Jewish thought. So look at Zechariah, Perak Gimel, okay? I'm going to read you now. Again, Zechariah is also written Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, they were the last of the prophets uh, in Tanakh, and they prophesied around the years 521, 520 BCE, during the early phases of the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash. They were actually the ones trying to get people to, to, uh, to build the Beit HaMikdash when there was apathy on the part of the returnees. And it says as follows in Zechariah, So this is a vision that Zechariah has. So Yoshua is standing there in front of a Malach Hashem. The Hasatan Omeid al Yemino Lisot No. 
what's standing there's the angel and then there's the satan but hashem says to the satan so now we're writing satan with a capital s essentially god rebukes the satan and says you're not allowed to touch this man meaning you're not allowed to do any damage to yehoshua okay so what do you guys notice here and again where these are very different circumstances than the first temple works this work is being written Zechariah is being written after a gap of 70 years Right? There's a sort of watershed moment in Jewish history, and the Jews are living under completely new political and national circumstances. So for the first time, we see the beginnings of what? What are you noticing? What do you notice in here? Just scream out because, oh, I can't see. Conflict just... between God and Satan, that they're more adversarial than... Okay, Asian. they're more... Okay, excellent, right? They're more adversarial... Right. If you remember in, in Sefer Bamidbar, Satan is the angel that happened to have been sent with the purpose of killing Bala, meaning that was, as, as you said, perfectly right. There was sort of that was his job. That was his role, as opposed to Satan in Zechariah seems to be the attacker, the executioner, the hey, Hayidia there. His role is almost known in the divine court. Right? And if we take it a step further, right, like Lisa was saying, not only does he seem to be distinct from the other angels, but in this case, there seems he seems to be standing in opposition to the angel. The Satan is there to kill. The angel opposes him and rebukes the Satan and pardons Yoshua Kohen Gadol, which is fascinating. I was going to say that, that, that here, the, the Satan seems to be more of an independent agent, which Ex wasn't age previously. Correct. Correct. An independent being and a known being, right? He's not just sort of an anonymous, again, angelic being being sent to do a specific task. There's, he's sort of known as the Satan. That's why I said Satan with a capital S, right? Which well, is uh, but just, uh, just to interject something here, uh, Micah, uh, but it says he's on his right hand. I mean, that's a very, sounds like a very prominent place. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And he's has Satan. Right. Meaning he's he's they are standing there almost as as, you know, adversaries of equal standing is the impression it gives us, I think. Right. Um, OK, by the way, this has nothing to do really with this sheer at all, but it's just so cool that and I so I had to just throw the picture in. One of the things that we is this pasuk of keeping demons uh, or this pasuk is actually quoted on an incantation bowl that was found that's now housed in the Iraq Museum um, in the later centuries of the common era, fifth, sixth, really up to the fifth, sixth centuries. They had these incantation bowls that they would bury uh, sometimes by the entrance of houses, sometimes by cemeteries to keep the demons away. And this pasuk from Zechariah is actually written in that incantation bowl as sort of uh, having these supernatural powers, which is really, really fascinating. Now, one of the things, by the way, in Tanakh, just, just sort of as a you know, point of reference, there are other times that we have executioners mentioned in Tanakh. We know that in Shemot, we have the Mashchit that's sent to kill the firstborn. We know that in Yechezkel, there are also superhuman executioners. There's an angel that responds to Chizkiyahu's prayers and kills the Assyrian troops, if you remember, towards the end of Malachim Bet, when the Assyrian troops are encamped around, the, around Jerusalem and the, the angel there comes and kills them. But what we're noticing, and I think this is what you mentioned, Mike, and I'm not sure, is for the first time, we're seeing this division of labor, right? Or competing wills. There's almost disagreement, it seems, among God's superhuman functionaries in the world, so to speak. Okay. 
But, and this is a very important but, what's important is that at this stage, the rebuke of Satan by the angel prevents him from executing Yoshua. So the Satan is still the employee of God. God still keeps the Satan in check. Okay? That's really critical. Now, whenever we see a shift like this, and this is what I was mentioning before, you know, what we try to figure out is where that shift originates. And if we think about these works, if we think about Divrei Hayamim and Zachariah being produced, I think there's probably two factors that we can identify that may have played into this uh, sort of differentiating of roles between the good angels and the bad angels, so to speak. The first one is cultural. First one is, is really strictly cultural in the sense that the Zoroastrian religion, which many argue was the official religion of the Achaemenid dynasty, meaning of the Persian dynasty, which was the, the Persians were, were sort of ruling over Israel when the book of um, Divrei Hayamim and Sakharia were being written, that already by the time of Darius, Zoroastrian religion um, was a, the official religion of the Achaemenid dynasty, but it was also credited with the creation of the concept of dualism whereby two divine beings, one good and one evil, are locked in eternal combat. You have Ahur Mazda and Agramanya, and there's this sense of these two, these two sort of opposing deity type or deified type beings. And so God's opponent's single divine being is Satan, right? But then we also see, if you look, for example, in some of the later works, we start to see Satanel and Gadriel and other names. Okay, now, one of the things that we know happens is that whatever the broader culture is understanding or the philosophy or the ideas that the broader culture in which Israel exists is, is producing makes its way into Jewish thought. And what we always do is we sort of, you know, siphon out certain ideas and weed through others, absorb some, reject others. And a lot of the concepts that begin to develop in Second Temple literature is are conceived of in dualistic terms. And that's very, very much heavily influenced by the Persian. And then of course, later it goes without saying the Greco-Roman culture. Right? So that's the cultural element. But I think that more than just how the worldview shaped what we believed, one of the things that I think also prompted, we, and this is really always what we ask, is not just what, what was the world believing and, and what about it made its way into Jewish thought, but one of the questions we want to ask, and specifically when we're learning Tanakh, is what prompted them or what inspired the authors of these Tzvarim to articulate that worldview? Right? Because ultimately, biblical narratives are the medium through which ideologies are articulated. So when we study Tanakh, ultimately, the question that we want to, that we want to know, or what we want to understand, is what question were these authors in Tanakh trying to answer about their own experience through the media of biblical narratives? And I think that one of the things we have to keep in mind is that by the Second Temple, um, God... And, and this may sound irreverent, but it's very, very obvious in all of the Second Temple works, certainly Esther, certainly Sefer Daniel, uh, Hashem sort of has his time of reckoning, so to speak, from the perspective of the Jews that believed in the promise God made them, that they're his chosen people and that they're always going to have his protection. But then they saw the destruction of the first temple and they had been under the proverbial thumb of foreign nations from that time on. And sometimes those nations were antagonistic towards the Jewish people. And so when we read the read between the lines of Second Temple literature, one of the things that we find are people looking for a way to deal with the age-old question of Tzadik Viralo, right, of theodicy. How do we simultaneously hold on to the notion of a just God 
in light of the existence of suffering in the world. And so by the time some of the latest works of Tanakh were being written, the challenge of theodicy was manifesting on all different levels. We have it manifesting on the national level. And so you have, for example, the Svarim like Sefer Daniel that address it. And Sefer Daniel says, why are the Jews still suffering? And it asks its question through narrative. Why are good righteous Jews being thrown into lions then and being thrown into fires? And Sefer Daniel, right, introduces all of these apocalyptic elements. The answer Sefer Daniel offers is it's really bad now, but just hold out. The future is going to be that much better, right? There's going to come a time, just wait for it. There's going to come a time where everything is going to be flipped on its head. And once again, the Jews are going to, are going to thrive and the enemies will be, and, and, and righteous, a sort of a justice, excuse me, will be restored, right? If we look at some of it, what's fascinating, I'll just give you another example from outside of Tanakh, where we see this question being addressed. Um, one of the very interesting narratives that they found among the Dead Sea Scrolls is from a work called The Testament of Solomon, where it recounts a tale, and it's well known from other sources in antiquity as well, of how Shlomo HaMelech subdued the various demons and used them for the construction of his temple, and then when the temple was done, he locked them up below the temple's foundations. But when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, one of the things that happens is that they inadvertently let loose this, this sort of horde of wild demons who caused affliction to the humans they encountered, et cetera, et cetera. And again, without, without you know, analyzing that story too much, what we see beneath that story are Jews trying to reconcile the fact that they believe in a good, just God, but the world is filled with evil. And so if they can tell a story about the demons being let loose, then, then it, it contextualizes it. It offers some form of an explanation, okay? I think beyond, and that's on the national level, but beyond the national level, and I think everyone on this Zoom can understand this or relate to it on some level, there's also the individual suffering. And I think that there was another issue that the Satan helped people deal with that we notice actually from the quintessential book of suffering known as Eov. Look at source seven for a second, okay? And uh, I'm keeping an eye on the time and we're running short. Okay, so I'm gonna move through some of these sources relatively quickly. Um, okay, I'll read this one quickly. And then um, it says, I'll summarize it actually, because it's getting late. Okay, so what we look at in Eov, is we see a fantastic introduction about a man who is appears to be perfect, but the Satan, right, approaches God and basically challenges God. And we, I think many of us are familiar with this, right? He says, you think he's so good? Let me tell you something. He's good because life is perfect and he never suffered and he never had reason to question you. But just wait, throw a little suffering his way and all his righteousness will fall by the wayside. Right? And so one of the things, again, that we look at, and I saved Eov because it's, you know, perhaps most revolutionary, if you think about it. No one knows, by the way, exactly when Eov was written, but most assume that it was already by the Second Temple period. One of the things that's interesting is that the Satan, just like in Zechariah, is being presented as this heavenly being, and he's the executioner from, from among them, and he's surveying the earth, and in theory, right, he should be punishing the wicked. But what we notice is that all of a sudden, for the first time, he seems to be punished, right? He seems to be punishing the righteous. Now, what's important again in Eov, and this is critical because Eov is a work of Tanakh, is that the Satan needs to obtain permission from God to strike Eov, and he's not allowed to kill him, okay? But 
he does bring suffering unjustly upon the innocent. And so God is still ultimately in control, but the Satan is the originator of his troubles, right? And that's something really, really interesting. If we think about the need for people to make sense of evil in this world and of righteous people suffering, that one of the strategies that Jewish thinkers and Jewish authors came up with is to attribute the origins of the, that suffering to other beings. It's not God that's causing the suffering, it's beings like the Satan. Now, I don't know if any of you are thinking about this question. I hope some of you are. The obvious question that we have to ask, and we're not going to, there's really no way to, to deal with this topic adequately in 30 seconds, which is all I'm giving it. Um, but I think the obvious question that many people might be wondering, right, is that in our desperate attempt to hold on to the notion of a benevolent deity, right, I can't let go of the idea that Hashem is good. Well, then by offering up this idea that there are other beings that have control over human fate, that seems to be compromising on our concept of monotheism, right? That there are other beings that can challenge God's omnipotence. That, that seems slightly problematic. So again, we have no time to deal with this, but I will say, um, A, the Tanakh in many places acknowledges that there are other forces in the world, right? Monotheism is about recognizing that God is ultimately in control and supremely in control and omnipotent despite the fact that there are other forces that may exist right but i yeah. also think yeah like even here though at the very end it says he like even here god gives us such constraints correct correct so that's exactly do. it correct meaning and and i think that's the the sense in tanakh right is that that, and that's exactly the definition of monotheism that I'm trying, right? That there may be other forces in the world, but at the end of the day, God is the most powerful, right? That's the declaration Hashem makes in Mitzrayim, right? 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 This idea that there may be other deities, right? Don't worship them because I am supreme, I am ultimate. And I think here, like you're saying, right, very, very perfectly, is that even though there are other forces that can cause suffering, ultimately Hashem could put a cap on anything they want to do. Okay, and that's the first really, really important distinction. And I think ultimately one of the things, and this is going to lead us into the really last portion of this year, is that I think ultimately this concept of other forces and, and as the idea develops, and, and it goes without saying in other religions, right, in early Christianity, the idea that the forces can potentially threaten the concept of monotheism is why so much of this concept of Satanism and demonology was prominent in much of the second temple literature, but was then redefined by the rabbis, okay? And sort of uh, limited to a very, very striking degree by the rabbis. But to appreciate, again, sort of the steps that they took to maintain God's supremacy, we have to just look at a couple of examples um, in terms of the ideas that were in vogue in the second temple period. So I, I am gonna apologize ahead of time. Yeah? It, I don't think that's monotheism. I think that's monolatry where you acknowledge that there are other gods. Correct. But early is where you say there really aren't any other gods. Correct. But early Tanakh biblical, the, the early conception, you know, again, this is like for a really totally different share and I don't want to be misunderstood or misconstrued at all. Um, but I, I think that early on Hashem, you know, the, the declaration Hashem makes to Israel is do not worship other deities, right? Worship me, like exactly what you're saying, monolatry. 
right? God never says those other deities don't exist. He said, do not worship them. That's very different. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. Okay. Um, so that's a really important, I think, um, you know, sort of nuance there. So I'm going to zip through some of the second temple sources relatively quickly, because I don't want to, I don't want to hold anyone over. Um, but one of the things I'll just give a couple of examples we see in the book of Enoch um, in the, which was written in the third century BCE. And it talks about Hanoch, right? It says, in the beginning of Breshit. So it led to all these traditions about the fact that Enoch or Hanoch never actually died, that he lived forever, sort of like Eliyahu. And so in the book of Enoch, he takes a tour of the heavens. And one of the secrets that he was privy to up there is found over there in source nine. And I'm not going to read through all of it. But if you skim that paragraph, you see that it talks about the spirits going forth in their bodies. And it talks all about how these evil spirits are going to be on earth. Now, the evil spirits they're talking about is based on the episode in Breshit where it says, Elohim, the sons of God saw Benot Adam, that they were beautiful, and they came down and commingled with them. And what the book of Enoch then goes on to discuss is how you see there in the second paragraph, the spirits of the giants consume and do violence and make desolate and attack and wrestle and hurl upon the earth and make races, that the offspring of that marriage or union marriage union between the sons of God and the daughters of man created these horrible spirits in the world. Okay. And one of the things that's interesting, you know, if we go back to what we saw in Eov and compare it, what we find in the book of Enoch is that these beings are even further distanced from God. They're no longer the employees of God. And they're the result, really, of this violation of proper boundaries. They're, they're the offspring of an act of rebellion to begin with. And they're not even distinguishing between the righteous and the evil. You know, the, the Satan and Savior Eov tried to, you know, antagonize uh, um, Eov. Here, they're just, it's sort of indiscriminate evil. They're not distinguishing between who they're causing suffering to, right? And so, again, there's something very, very interesting that we're, they're blaming, right? It's not just blaming evil and affliction on, on these beings. It's charging them. If you look at the last, chap, uh, last paragraph there, it's charging these beings with even enticing man or leading man to sin. Okay? And it gives all these different cases where they were tricked or deluded them to sin and worship demons, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the book of Enoch. And again, I, it's really, really important to stress, even though these works didn't make it into Tanakh, right? They're what we call apocryphal or extra biblical. They're what Jews were thinking and talking about. And so if Chazal are going to sort of veer off from, from some of these ideas and tweak those ideas, that's going to be a conscious tweaking. That's going to be something that Chazal are going to intentionally do. Okay. Could you um, comment for, for a minute on um, the passage that you read to us from Eo starts yeah. with Vayavo Beneha Elohim, Hashem, Vayavo Satan. So in Eo, you had both. B'nai Elohim and the Satan, but oh, that's then B'nai Elohim seem to drop out of the picture, and the Satan is the one that God addresses. Ah, that's interesting. Um, listen, unless you want to, you know, unless B'nai Elohim are sort of there as, you know, part of the, the divine retinue, I'm not sure what function, I would have to look back at the Pasuk actually okay. more carefully. No, but that's, a, that's really, really interesting. Um, are there there as witnesses to that sort of, you know, it almost appears like a court case, right? Like, yeah, like they say by Yitzhatsvu. So yes, right, correct. It seems like the Satan is sort of bringing there, are they witnesses to that court case where the Satan is sort of prosecuting Eov? It's very, that's really interesting. Um, I have to look at that. 
that's interesting. I never made the connection to the B'nai Elohim there in Enoch. Um, okay, so one of the things that I'm just going to, again, I'm going to sort of please, please at your leisure read through these things, but I don't want to run out of time. Um, but one of the things we also see um, in late Second Temple works, you see it in the Book of Jubilees there, Source 11, is we see that the Satan and the evil spirits, and when you read through the paragraph, you'll notice this, um, begin to join forces to rule over the nations of the earth and they deceive and they afflict mankind. And for the first time, we find here what we actually noticed in Zechariah that Satan has a proper name. Satan is no longer just Has Satan, the Satan. It's almost evolved. Now he's Prince Mastama, right? And Prince Mastama was shamed, etc., etc. Okay. Now, um, again, I, I really apologize that I didn't look at the time earlier and I don't have time to address this, but one of the things that's fascinating is that if you look at this story here that the Book of Jubilees is addressing, it's actually talking about, it's addressing the 10 tests. It's introducing the concept that's picked up later on in Midrash that Avraham had 10 nisio note, that Avraham had 10 tests to pass. Right, so here, even here, when whether we realize it or not, the second temple works that were not included into the Tanakh and were not necessarily right, were sort of excluded by Chazal. The the oral traditions made their way into some of our earliest midrashim. Right now. Um, I'm not going to, I don't want to be lumping Tanakh and Chazal together. It goes without saying, right? And we also can't lump all of Second Temple literature together. There were lots of different sects and lots of different, you know, ways of understanding the world and concepts and beliefs. And so there's lots of different nuances between all these different works, even that we're looking at. Um, and, and so I don't want to give the misconception that, that they all thought one thing about the Satan. But one of the things that is important, and one of the things that I think is, is sort of, you know, important to just recognize when we take all of these different ideas together is that the ideas circulating and migrating in the Jewish communities about the different ways of conceiving superhuman beings and their roles in human affairs and their need to wrestle with the unprecedented challenge to the, their conceptions of God sort of led to this blossoming of different ideas regarding the origins of these evil beings and what these evil beings were capable of. And it took up so much space in Jewish thought in the Second Temple period. We see the, in, in an extreme case, we see this Qumran sect, right? The Jews that moved out into the Judean desert and had their own sect. They believed that all the Jews that were left in Jerusalem and left in the cities were evil because they had been deluded by the demons. And the, the Qumran community was actually waiting they separated, they were waiting for the sons of lightness to emerge to, to sort of, you know, victorious over the sons of darkness, right? And it extends again, even beyond the dead, beyond Masada, uh, beyond, excuse me, the Judean desert. They found on Masada, lots of examples of different items. Yigal Yadin, who founded, he found the Bar Kokhba caves. One of the things he also found among the, the uh, what, was, what was discovered at Masada are child t-shirts with pouches. And sewn into those pouches were salt crystals that were, that were expected to ward off the demons. And there were all sorts of amulets. And so the belief in satanic, be satanic beings and demons and their power in late antiquity, really all the way into the medieval period, was something that was very, very powerful and holds real powerful sway over Jewish thought. And, you know, it's interesting, I'm not going to even get into the way the Mishnah and the Gemara address it. Um, but one of the things, just by way of example, the Mishnah talks about how carrying pouches attached to a belt on Shabbos to keep away the evil spirits, right? So they take it as a given that people did that, 
but they call it Darchei HaEmori, right? That's not something that we do, but it was taken almost as a given that people did those types of things. And even in the Gemara, by the way, we have rabbis like Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai associated with exorcist abilities, etc. Okay. Now, one of the most, I would say, important differences is that Chazal redefined in a number of ways how we speak about these otherworldly beings. And a big piece of that re-articulation versus some of this literature that we saw, for example, was creating an ideology that was distinct from some of the other competing ideologies, the other sects and the newly emerging religions. And so one of the things that you, one of the things, right, that you may have noticed is that there's a lot of discussion of eschatology, of waiting for the day of judgment in some of the Second Temple literature. And in the aftermath of the failed Bar Kokhba revolt and the, well, the failed Second Temple Revolt, and then the failed Bar Kokhba Revolt, Chazal intentionally really tried to steer clear of concepts of eschatology. So the idea that the demons will one day be destroyed is something that Chazal steered very, very clear of. And the other thing that Chazal do that we notice is that if there are ever people in rabbinic literature that are able to have power or, or uh, sway over demons, their power is always the result of their learning, not their charismatic abilities, right? Which stands in stark contrast to Jesus. It wasn't their charisma, it was their knowledge, it was their Torah learning, et cetera, et cetera, okay? But I think the most important, really, or most profound uh, difference that we see is the internalization of the forces of evil. I don't remember who said it in the first minute of the class, but when I said translate Satan, someone said Yetzer. And I think that one of the most important things that we see is that the characters we became used to seeing as independent actors, right? The, the Satan in Zachary or the, the Satan or the, the Mastama from Second Temple literature that threaten from the outside slowly move inward and are reimagined as Yetzers, right? Which if we think about it is really part of this larger shift in general where we have the further away man felt God to be, the more internal the forces, both good and evil became. So you have less prophecy and more focus on the soul. And you have this really important notion of free will, not of determinism, like the Qumran community spoke of. So there's this focus on the internal Yetzer, not the external Lucifer, no, Lucifer, Lucifer, right? And so again, there's no one approach, but one of the things that we see with the Yetzers and one of the things that we see in some of the rabbinic statements, right? I'll give you, um, I'll give you one just quick example is from the, actually I will not because I literally have three minutes left, but I will, if you look in the, in the Sifri right there in source 12, one of the things that's really interesting is it talks about how Boaz was lying there on the threshing floor and the, his Yetzer Hara tries to not just convince him, not just entice him to do a sin with Ruth and say, sleep with her just because she's beautiful, right? That's not giving the Yetzer enough credit. The Yetzer in the Midrash there is actually telling Boaz, Boaz, it's actually not a sin because there's two ways to acquire a woman through marriage. One is through Kiddushin and one is through sleeping with her. And so it's really, and, and so there what's fascinating, and, and right, we know the psychologists, right? Jonathan Haidt in the book, The Righteous Minds actually talks about how we now know from neuroscience that as human beings, that's what we do, right? We don't just do bad things. We do bad things, but rationalize them. 
So the Yitzhar Hara there, for example, and in other places in rabbinic literature is described not just as a Satan that wants to wreak havoc, but something much more sophisticated, something brilliant and conniving, right? It's not unbridled passion. It's not the Christian idea of the body versus the soul, but it's this sophisticated insider that tries to lead us astray through these pseudo-halachic arguments, which is really, really fascinating. And so logically, the way to deal with supernatural evil forces, right, is through, it goes without saying, through mitzvot. And I'll, I'll, if you, I'll read source 15 as the final source, Tanat ve Rabbi Ishmael, v'ni impagabacha minuval zeh. Right? If you happen to come across that repulsive one referring to the Satan or any sort of Satan or Yetzer or demonic, right? any force that's trying to lead you astray, just drag him into the Beit HaMidrash. Right? There's a sense, and I think this is what, what Chazal, if, if there's one thing we take from the way Chazal talk about the way to counter evil in the world, and again, it doesn't answer the question of theodicy, but their answer to evil is to try to counter it with as much Torah learning and as much good as possible. Okay, now the debates raged further into the Middle Ages with the Maimonidean revolution and Kabbalah, which we can't even address. But just to wrap up, um, you know, the question is, what do we make of this, right? Does the Satan actually exist as the ancient Jews believed? Do we imagine that there are these angelic beings walking around in our midst, sort of, you know, working for, working against us? Or do we believe that in the end of the day, it's all human beings? I think that what becomes clear um, when we see a concept unfold and take on different iterations is, Firstly, how deeply people have always wrestled with pain and with suffering and with trying to make sense of that suffering without losing their faith in God and in humanity. And I think that one of the things we realize the more we study Jewish history and Jewish thought is that human nature really never changes, right? It doesn't change. What changes are the terms we use and what changes is our ability to speak of the phenomena we experience in all sorts of different ways. So today I might talk about global warming and tsunamis. And in the ancient world, they spoke about the storm gods, right? Or in the ancient world, they spoke about Lilith attacking beds of women in labor. And today we talk about strep bacteria, right? Or, or in the ancient world, there were plagues and now we call it COVID-19. But at the end of the day, Right? As much as we like to believe that our terminology is so much more sophisticated, and there's no question advances in science and technology is sophistication, and humanity is meant to constantly improve and, and increase their knowledge and their ability to interact with the world. But I think that one of the things, you know, if anything, the last two years have taught us, it's that as much as we would like to imagine we have control, we are reminded constantly of how little control we have. And so Chazal's answer, really, or response is that we have no control over our environment, right? And the realities and the historical contingencies around us are, are something that we have no control over. But at the end of the day, um, you know, evil and suffering the, or the suffering that evil engenders exists. What we can control is what we do when we're confronted with it. And, and I think what Chazal say there, that answer of take him, just drag him into the Beit Midrash is to engage in Jewish texts. We can't fix everything around us but we can probe as deeply as we can into the wisdom available to humanity. We can use that knowledge to speak up and to act against evil when possible. And we can learn how to be better people through the rules and the concepts outlined in halacha, outlined in Jewish tradition. And Chazal's answer to evil is that if we can do that, then whatever Satan is, 
we're going to be on the right track, at the very least, to putting up a good fight. Um, so, you know, I think this time of year, as I mentioned, we are all very aware of this concept of Satan, as Suri mentioned at the very, very beginning. I think we are all very aware, unfortunately, in today's day and age of our lack of control over the physical world around us. Um, but I think Hazal give us that, that perfectly inspiring answer. Um, it doesn't mean we have control, but it means we have something to hold on to and some ways of, of bringing good into the world, despite the fact that sometimes it feels like the like things are stacked in the wrong direction. So I'm going to open up uh, the chat again, just in case anyone has questions. And I want to wish everyone a k'mar chatimatova. Question from Sivan. Why was the serpent crawling in God's Eden um, unless it was among the creatures of the garden? That's one question, um, if it wasn't already answered. Um, so it's interesting. I think that's one of those places where we conflate later midrash and later images, even from medieval art with what the Pasuk says. The Pasuk is not talking about a Satan. The Pasuk is just talking about a sneaky snake, right? And again, what that whole story and what the metaphorical significance is, is something, but, but it's important to read the Pasuk and, and just see the Pasuk talks just about the Nachash. It doesn't introduce the concept of Satan in Gan Eden um, in, the, in Breshit itself. Later on, it's imposed onto the story, which is interesting. Okay. Another question from Shosh. Could you say more about Chazal steering clear of uh, eschatology uh, post Bar Kochva? Yeah, listen, I'm, I'm certainly not the, not at all. Tanakh is my field, certainly not a rabbinic literature, but as much, from what I understand, you know, I think the, the failed revolt, certainly the first, you know, the, the revolt in 70 CE where the Romans destroyed the Beit HaMikdash and then later the Bar Kochva revolt. Um, I, I think one of the reactions that, from what I understand, that the way that Chazal reacted to that was to sort of temper any hopes for um, anything that would sort of incite rebellion, anything that would incite the sense that if we just work hard enough, we could get rid of those Romans and we could reconquer Jerusalem. And one of the things that Chazal tried to do in their outlining of halacha and addressing um, you know, the tragedies of their day is to sort of take more pragmatic um, approaches in the sense of sit in your beat midrash, learn Torah, do what you need to do. It was sort of you know, replacing swords with with with. Torah learning, um, I, I think they understood that the rebellious rebellion route was not was not the answer, and that they had to accept the reality of exile, and rather than try to fight that reality, try to give the Jewish people tools that would be portable and that would be, um, you know, could could hold them through the through the future. Which I don't even know they realized how long it was going to be. <laughs> Lisa, do you have a question? Um, no, I was just thinking that some of these concepts in terms of the enticing and things like that are actually the themes throughout Mishlei, which is an earlier work. Um, you know, the woman enticing you, knowledge will do this. And I mean, right, but that's interesting. But there it's never a demonic being there. It's always right. right it's the beautiful woman or the right. right folly there. I think it's a much more looking at the universe and all the the tangible things in our universe, the people, the factors The um, that's very different than having the supernatural, powerful being coming and enticing humanity to do evil or to worship um, I, I think there's a difference there. Mm -hmm. I think um, I could be wrong. I should go back and look at Michelle again. <laughs> and I think uh, another question from Jennifer: um, When in uh, antiquity, on a timeline, did the idea that, uh, of one God and no other God uh, take place? 
Oh boy, that's an excellent question. I would, again, I don't hold me to anything. Um, I, I think already by the time of Yishayahu, um, I think by the time we begin to have empires towards the end of Bayrishon um, and the concept of local gods starts to fall by the wayside. And once Israel goes out into Galut, so it can't be the local God concept anymore of our, you know, there has to be this sort of concept of a, a universal God of Hashem controlling Babylon and sending them to destroy us. And, um, you know, Hashem also being the one to defeat the empires and bring us back. Um, again, I, I don't know tangibly, you know, it's more of a conceptual difference than anything else, because practically, regardless of what you call it, monolatry or monotheism, you can't worship other gods, right? Um, so I think it was more a conceptual um, difference. It was sort of a nuance in, the in theology that I think begins to evolve as much, you know, as far as I understand it, towards the late uh, first temple period. And then, you know, it gets, of course, fine-tuned beyond that. Yeah, El? Yes. Um, going back to kind of tying in what my sister said in the beginning mm -hmm. to your suggestion and your recommendation at the end that, um, that our response and what we do is, is the reaction, uh, is, is the power that we have. I think approaching Yom Kippur, when we actually face the existence of whatever this Satan is and say Vitigar Satan, like just yeah. don't let him get yeah. to me. Yeah. And you know, we can we can all, you know, 364 days a year, we can do our very best and work on ourselves and work on, on our approach to our lives. But on Yom Kippur, Hashem, we need your help to yeah. keep Satan out of our way. I love that. And I think it's so true. It's so beautiful, right? On the one hand, yes, we can do everything. We could try, try, try. But at the end of the day, we're throwing ourselves at the mercy of God. And that's what we're being reminded of. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> that's really true. It's really, really very true. Any more uh, questions or comments? Feel free to unmute if you'd like to speak. I, I was noticing also in, in that context, we, we actually, Psalm you know, 51, we, ask, we, we tell God that we know that we were born from evil. So that, that seems huh. to be a very different concept. And I, you know, I've been hearing just the struggle, the, the tension between you know, who we are essentially and what really is more of a foreign power you know, that, we, yeah. that we do these things. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, again, I, it's what I, I think at the end of the day, we struggle with evil. That is the, the if, you know, if there's one thing you see in every single Sefer in Tanakh without exception, it's man trying to understand why suffering exists. Some Svarim, it's more obvious, Eov, right, Daniel, Esther. Some Svarim, it's more subtle, but it is always there, that question. So it, I think what you're saying is really true, right? We're, we're sort of always, it's always there. We may struggle with evil, but in the end, there's a big difference between associating that with some independent power and our own thought, which is why the medievalists, which you mentioned, and rightfully so, didn't have time to go into. <laughs> Maimonides is so powerful in that he did not at all endow angels. And I'd like Correct. to think Satanism is an extension of that that they're really 
whatever it means in our thought. And yes. from that vantage point, you know, we cope with evil in our own thought. We cope with goodness, um, but no way it would be an independent power. That would be something that would be a total apostasy um, right. to the very nature of monotheism, which is right. why I think Maimonides, you know, when he wrote, wrote so strongly about his concept and construct, you know, going back to Abraham greeting the angels. Mm -hmm. 100%, 100%. Um, since you, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I keep thinking, Judy Bardak, um, I keep thinking about Freud. I, I heard somewhere that one of his grand, great grandfathers or, or grandfather was a Hungarian rabbi. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> But he would be surprising. <laughs> he, that's what he he his whole theory is constructed. Well, part, uh, a significant part of his ego, id, ego, superego. So that's internalizing as the Jew, Jewish religion has evolved. And Rambam was certainly worshipped the Greeks, which right. was uh, the height of uh, rational thinking, uh, and not worshipped him worshiped them, but admired them. And his idea of the perfect man was modeled, I think, on a Greek philosopher in a way. Yes. So, but the, but the, I couldn't help but think of Freud. I mean, this is the Eter Harad, the Eter Hatov, well, be, uh, you have Satan, then eventually, as you said, as time goes on, we internalize those forces within us. Right. And our enemies are the external aspects of those forces. So who are our enemies? Frequently they're people who, they're parts of us that we don't like and that we see in others. So I'm gonna finish. I thought you were astounding. Oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. I thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, in source and, level, uh, you would, oh. yeah, if Sorry. I yeah. would have to figure out who I'm looking at. I, I, th I think Jennifer. Oh. Uh, wait, wait, was that Rabbi Silber? He would go oh, was for, that Rabbi Silber? for sure. Okay, so if you had something, I don't Silver want to interrupt anyone. Yeah, I have my hand up, but I can wait. Oh, my something. gosh. Go ahead, speak. I'll talk after you. Oh, okay, very quickly. I just wondered, you know, um, a total aside, when you look at classical music, you know how it evolves from Baroque and then classical and then romantic as, as um, people gain more and more control, you know, over their environment. I want to say yes, I don't, yeah. but yeah, I will. Oh, oh well, the music was highly <laughs> structured when they knew nothing about the world they lived in and then gradually, mm. you know, they gained more control uh, over their environment so they could just turn to expressing their feelings. So I didn't know in your, con in the having more than one God would that and then as Israelites evolved and learned more, did that influence at all their conception of one God? Um, 
it's on a totally non, this is on a totally non-spiritual, non-Torah level. This right. Is, so I'm going to, I'm going to, the only ignore reason that I question. To answer that question, no, it's just because it is such a thorny topic and anything I say in seven seconds will, will sort of, I think unfairly leave you with more questions than answers. And I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying. It's such a critical um, topic by all means. I'm sure um, Trisha has my email. So email me and I'm happy to, to respond on email. I just, you know, it would be so unfair to do it in, you know. No, no, don't worry. And I also want to thank you. It was fabulous. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Silver, I apologize. Go ahead. Okay. Rabbi Silver. Uh, okay, just a couple of thoughts. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, I would, in terms of the later works, whether it's later biblical works or post-biblical works, um, seeing Satan as some kind of being, or a separate being, not just a, uh, not just someone there to, not, 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 not an internal state and not just another angel, but someone who has some, some kind of a semi-autonomous or autonomous power. Um, and, the, and the verses in Zechariah and Eov and all that, I just would say that in terms of Divrei Hayamim, which essentially is a reworking of the stories of David and Shlomo, I think we should also look at the context of the book. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the verse in the last chapter of Shmuel, of Shmuel, of Shmuel uh, which talks about God was continued to be angry by Yosef Hashem Racharot by at David. So God incites David, and by Yosef maybe even the play on the word Satan. But the but the book of Diri Hayamim, which is a later book, says Vayamot Satan, and I don't think that can be. Uh, I don't think it's unrelated to the fact that in the book of Shmuel, the character of David is portrayed as certainly a flawed, if not deeply flawed person. Uh, God's anger is vented against David more than one time. You have the David Bathsheba story, all that is missing in Divrei Hayamim. So in Divrei Hayamim, to say that the Satan is inciting David, okay. is not the same as saying that God did it. In fact, That's in important. Shmuel, the last verse of the previous chapter mentions David's Kiborim, the last one is Uriah Achiti. And that's right. not true in Divrei Hayamim, they have different mm -hmm. order. So that's I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that a, a book has its own particular set of agendas and that Diri Hayamim essentially cleans David up completely. Yeah. So it would be inappropriate for that book to say God is angry with David. So therefore, That's since Satan is current at the time as an autonomous being, they have chosen, even though they often just quote from Samuel, they chose to say Satan as opposed to God, but they have their own internal workings. And I think we always have to pay attention to the book. I, I like, yes, thank you. Uh, That's really, really comment. important. And just the second one, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, as you say, it's a vast topic. And, and I would just, in terms of what Nachum had said, just to point out that I think uh, Maimonides notwithstanding, I would say the Jewish people have essentially left Maimonides thinking a long time ago. <laughs> and basically we have joined the Kabbalists as Gershom Sholem says, evil is a reality. And Yes, it's very important. Say Amalek, for example, which is a perfect example. Amalek can be internalized, maybe should be internalized. And I've argued that myself and the Hasidic masters say it. But I don't think that's to the exclusion of evil is real. And I think it's very important to not lose sight of that fact that there is evil. It's a reality. It's not just inside myself or the worst parts of me. It may also be that. But I would say the Jewish people have essentially sided with uh, the capitalists in this respect, hmm. in terms of seeing the world. We don't see that all the problems in the world is coming from our failings. 
we see them right. as coming from other places as well. No, hundred percent. I hope I didn't. I hope I didn't miss. No, you didn't. You, know, you, you didn't. Not at all. I'm just no, saying I'm saying for evil, there, there is no there. question that evil is that. Yeah, that's that's very very yes. There is no and question. Thank you again. Evil. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Rabbi Silva. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, hi, Silva. <laughs> you weren't on my screen before. <laughs> Sorry, was there one more question or no? No, I, Rabbi yeah. Silver. Yes. I, so I had two thoughts. One is that along those lines of whether evil is just you struggling within yourself, I know there's one view of the struggle of Yaakov with the angel that it was just Yaakov struggling with his with his other side. Mm. But, that, that's, but when Nachum mentioned Maimonides, so I'm thinking Nachmanides. Um, is the one who says, I believe that the um, Sa'ir Lazazel is a Shochad La Samael. Yes, he does say that. Right. So he was, you know, they were somewhat contemporaries, and yet he is still interpreting the need to pacify the evil forces, the sure. external the evil capitalist. forces. He's not a, I wouldn't say he's not a radical capitalist in the sense that he does believe that God ultimately controls it. Some others would argue that kind of duality, but for sure. Evil exists, it has to be bribed or whatever, or, or at least acknowledged. I think that's for sure. That's and that's uh, sure. And I think I'm just saying, I think the Jewish people in general have sided with the thinking of Nachmanides. We don't explain the Holocaust, say, well, it's because of our sins necessarily. I think most people would say it's evil, as the Eshkoder said. So God's fighting Amalek and we're caught, in, we're caught in the middle. So I think that's more or less. Right. I think you many, many people. Not that there's one uniform theology, but there's a lot of people would yeah. say that as opposed to saying human mistake, our sins, I think for the most part, many Jews don't actually believe that. Thank you, Yael, and thank you, Drisha, once again, for allowing us to honor my father's thank memory in this way. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for this interesting uh, class, Yael. And I want to extend again, many, many, many thanks to the Rudolph family for this uh, Stanley Rudolph Memorial High, High Holiday Lecture. We're very, very grateful. Uh, we will go live again tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern with the third and last uh, class on forgiveness in Judaism and philosophy with Rabbanit Sarna and Professor White. In addition, um, the recording, I know that a few people asked about the recording. Uh, the recording, uh, recordings for all live classes are available uh, to watch at www.drisha.org live. And you can find out more information on our website also uh, about classes and registration links. The website is www.drisha.org classes. Thank you again for this opportunity to learn with you, Yael, and many thanks again to the Rudolph uh, family. Uh, thank you also to everyone who attended uh, here on Zoom, on Facebook, and also if you watched us live on uh, Drisha Live. Uh, we hope to see everyone uh, soon again at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. Thank you so much.